Part 1, Chapter 9, Part 1 of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 9, Part 1. Competition. 1. On the face of the door, on the third floor of the house in Russell Square, the words G.E. Cannon appeared in dirty white paint, and the freshly added initials A.R.I.B.A. in clean white paint. The addition of the triumphant initials, indicating that George had kissed the rod of the Royal Institute of British Architects in order to conquer, had put the sign as a whole out of centre, throwing it considerably to the right on the green door-face. Within the small and bare room, on an evening in earliest spring in 1904, sat George at the customary large flat desk of the architect. He had just switched on the electric light over his head. He looked sterner and older. He looked very worried, fretful, exhausted. He was thin and pale. His eyes burned, and there were dark patches under the eyes. The discipline of the hair had been rather gravely neglected. In front of George lay a number of large plans mounted on thick cardboard, whose upper surface had a slight convex curve. There were plans of the basement of the projected town hall, of the ground floor, of the building at a height of twelve feet from the ground, of the mezzanine floor, of the first, second, third, fourth and fifth floors. These plans were coloured. Further, in plain black and white, there were a plan of the roof with a tower, a longitudinal section on the central axis, two other sections, three elevations, and a perspective view of the entire edifice, seventeen sheets in all. The sum of work seemed tremendous. It made the mind dizzy. It made George smile with terrible satisfaction at his own industry, for he had engaged very little help. He would have been compelled to engage more had not the corporation extended by one month the time for sending in. The corporation had behaved with singular enlightenment. Its schedules of required accommodation, George's copy was scored over everywhere in pencil and ink and seriously torn, were held to be admirably drawn, and its supplementary circular of answers to questions from competitors had displayed a clarity and a breadth of mind unusual in corporations. Still more to the point, the corporation had appointed a second assessor to act with Sir Hugh Corver. In short, it had shown that it was under no mandarin's thumb, and that what it really and seriously wanted was the best design that the profession could produce. Mr. Enright, indeed, had nearly admitted regret at having kept out of the immense affair. John Orgreave had expressed regret with vigour and candour. They had in the main left George alone, though occasionally at night Mr. Enright, in the little room, had suggested valuable solutions of certain problems. In detail he was severely critical of George's design, and he would pour delicate satires upon the idiosyncrasy which caused the willful boy to impurify, a word from Enright's private vocabulary, a Renaissance creation with Saracenic tendencies in the treatment of arches and wall spaces. Nevertheless, Mr. Enright greatly respected the design in its entirety, and both he and John Orgreave, who had collected by the subterranean channels of the profession a large amount of fact and rumour about the efforts of various competitors, opined that it stood a fair chance of being among the selected six or ten whose authors would be invited to submit final designs for the final award. George tried to be hopeful, but he could not be hopeful by trying. It was impossible to believe that he would succeed. The notion was preposterous. 
Yet at moments, when he was not cultivating optimism, optimism would impregnate all his being, and he would be convinced that it was impossible not to win. How inconceivably grand! His chief rallying thought was that he had undertaken a gigantic task, and had accomplished it. Well or ill, he had accomplished it. He said to himself aloud, I've done it, I've done it. And that he actually had done it was almost incredible. The very sheets of drawing were almost incredible. But they existed there. All was complete. The declaration that the design was G. E. Cannon's personal work, drawn in his own office by his ordinary staff, was there, in the printed envelope officially supplied by the corporation. The estimate of cost and the cubing was there. The explanatory report on the design, duly typewritten, was there. Nothing lacked. I've done it. I've done it. And then, tired as he was, the conscience of the creative artist and of the competitor began to annoy him and spur him. The perspective drawing did not quite satisfy, and there was still time. The point of view for the perspective drawing was too high up, and the result was a certain marring of the nobility of the lines, and certainly a diminishment of the effect of the tower. He previously started another perspective drawing with a lower viewpoint, but he had mistakenly cast it aside. He ought to finish the first one and substitute it for the second one. The perspective drawing had a moral importance. It had a special influence on the assessors and committees. Horrid, tiresome labour. Three, four, five, or six hours of highly concentrated tedium. Was it worthwhile? It was not. Mr. Enright liked the finished drawing. He, George, could not face a further strain. And yet he was not content. Pooh! Who said he could not face a further strain? Of course he could face it. If he did not face it, his conscience would accuse him of cowardice during the rest of his life, and he would never be able to say honestly, I did my level best with the thing. He snapped his fingers lightly, and in one second had decided to finish the original perspective drawing, and in his very finest style. He would complete it sometime during the night. In the morning it could be mounted. The drawings were to go to the north in a case on the morrow by a passenger train and to be met at their destination by a commissionaire common to several competitors. This commissionaire would deliver them to the town clerk in accordance with the conditions. In a few minutes, George was at work, excited, having forgotten all fatigue. He was saying to himself that he would run out towards eight o'clock for a chop or a steak. As he worked, he perceived that he had been quite right to throw over the second drawing. He wondered that he could have felt any hesitation. The new drawing would be immeasurably superior. Mr. Hayne stepped up, discreetly knocking, entering with dignity. The relations between these two had little by little resumed their old, purely formal quality. Both seemed to have forgotten that passionate anger had ever separated them and joined them together. George was young and capable of oblivion. Mr. Hayne had beaten him in the struggle and could afford to forget. They conversed politely, as though the old man had no daughter and the youth had never had a lover. Mr. Hayne had even assisted with the lettering of the sheets, not because George needed his help, but because Mr. Hayne's calligraphic pride needed to help. To refuse the stately offer would have been to insult. Mr. Hayne had aged, but not greatly. You're wanted on the telephone, Mr. Cannon. Oh, dash it! Thanks. After all, George was no longer on the staff of Lucas and Enright, and Mr. Hayne was conferring a favour. 
Down below in the big office, everybody had gone except the factotum. George seized the telephone receiver and called brusquely for attention. Is that Mr. Cannon? Yes, who is it? Oh, it's you, George. How nice to hear your voice again. He recognised, but not instantly, the voice of Lois Ingram. He was not surprised. Indeed, he had suspected that, that the disturber of work must be either Lois or Miss Wheeler or possibly Lorenzin. The three had been in London again for several days, and he had known from Lucas that a theatre party had been arranged for that night to witness the irresistible musical comedy The Gay Spark. Lucas and Monsieur de Faucombleau were to be of the party. George had not yet seen Lois since his latest return to London. He had only seen her twice since the previous summer. He had not visited Paris in the interval. The tone of her voice, even as transformed by the telephone, was caressing. He had to think of some suitable response to her startling amiability, and to utter it with conviction. He tried to hold fast in his mind to the image of the perspectives with its countless complexities and the coordination of them all. The thing seemed to be retreating from him, and he dared not let it go. Do you know, said Lois, I only came to London to celebrate the sending in of your design. I hear it's marvellous. Aren't you glad you finished it? Well, I haven't finished it, said George. I am on it now. What did the girl mean by saying she'd only come to London to celebrate the end of his work? An invention on her part. Still, it flattered him. She was very strange. But Everard told us you'd finished a bit earlier than you'd expected. We counted on seeing your lordship tomorrow. But now we've got to see you tonight. Awfully sorry, I can't. But look here, George, you must. Really, the party's all broken up. Miss Wheeler's had to go back to Paris tonight, and Jules can't come. Everything's upset. The flag's going to be closed, and Lorenzine and I will have to leave tomorrow. It's most frightfully annoying. We've got the box all right, and Everard's coming, and you must make the fourth. We must have a fourth. Lorenzine's here at the phone, and she says the same as me. Wish I could, George answers shortly. Look here, what train are you going by tomorrow? I'll come and see you off. I should be free then. But, George, we want you to come tonight. There seemed positively to be tears in the faint voice. Why can't you come? You must come. I haven't finished one of the drawings. I tell you I'm on it now. It'll take me half the night or more. I'm just in the thick of it, you see. He spoke with a slight resentful impatience, less at her over-persuasiveness than at the fact that his mind and the drawing were being more and more separated. Soon he would have lost the right mood, and he would be compelled to recreate it before he could resume the work. The forcible, gradual dragging away of his mind from its passionately gripped objective was torture. He had an impulse to throw down the receiver and run off. The distant, squeaking voice changed to the petulant. You are horrid. You could come right enough if you wanted to. But don't you understand? It's awfully important for me. He was astounded, absolutely astounded. She would not understand. She decided that he must go to the musical comedy and nothing else mattered. His whole future did not matter. Oh, very well then, Lois said, undisguisedly vexed. Of course, if you won't, you won't. But really, when two girls implore you like that, and we have to leave tomorrow and everything's upset, I do think it's... However, good night. Here, hold hard a sec. I'll, I'll come for an hour or so. What's the number of the box? Fourteen said the voice brokenly. Immediately afterwards she rang off. George was hurt and bewildered. The girl was incredibly ruthless. She was mad. Why had he yielded? Only a silly conventional feeling had made him yield. And yet he was a great scorner of convention. He went upstairs again to the perspective drawing. 
He looked at his watch. He might work for half an hour before leaving to dress. No, he could not. The mood had vanished. The perspective had slipped into another universe. He could not even pick up a pen. He despised himself terribly, despairingly, for yielding. 2. In spite of all this, he anticipated with pleasure the theatre party. He wanted to go. He was glad he was going. The memory of Lois and the tea palace excited him. And he could refuse a hearing to his conscience and could prevent himself from thinking uncomfortably of the future as well as most young men. His secret, unadmitted voluptuous eagerness was alloyed only by an apprehension that after the scene over the telephone, Lois might be peevish and ungracious. The fear proved to be baseless. Owing to the imperfections of the club laundry and the erring humanity of Downs, he arrived late. The gay spark had begun. He found a darkened auditorium and a glowing stage. In the dim box, Lois and Lorenzin were sitting in front on gilt chairs. Lucas sat behind Lorenzin, and there was an empty chair behind Lois. Her gesture, her smile, her glance, as she turned to George and looked up, were touching. She was delighted to see him. She had the mien of a child who has got what it wanted and has absolutely forgotten that it ever pouted, shrieked and stamped its foot. She was determined to charm her uttermost. Her eye in the gloom was soft with mysterious invitations. George looked about the interior of the box. He saw the rich cloaks of the girls hanging up next to glossy masculine hats, the large mirror on the wall, and mother-of-pearl opera glasses, chocolates and flowers on the crimson ledge. He was very close to the powerfully built and yet plastic Lois. He could watch her changing curves as she breathed. The faint scent she used rose to his nostrils. He thought, with contained rapture, nothing in the world is equal to this. He did not care a fig for the effect of perspective drawings or the result of the competition. Lois, her head half turned towards him, her gaze lost in the sombre distances of the auditorium, talked in a low tone, ignoring the performance. He gathered that the sudden departure of Irene Wheeler had unusually impressed and disconcerted, and, to a certain extent, mortified the two sisters, who could not explain it, and who resented the compulsion to go back to Paris at once. And he detected in Lois, not for the first time, a grievance that Irene kept her, Lois, apart from the main current of her apparently gorgeous social career. Obviously, an evening at which the sole guests were two girls and a youth, all quite unknown to newspapers, could not be a major item in the life of a woman such as Irene Wheeler. She had left them unceremoniously to themselves at the last moment, as it were permitting them to do what they liked within the limits of goodness for one night, and commanding them to return sagely home on the morrow. A red-nosed actor, hands in pockets, waddled self-consciously onto the stage, and the packed audience, emitting murmurs of satisfaction, applauded. Conversations were interrupted. George, expectant, gave his attention to the show. He knew little or nothing of musical comedy, having come under influences which had taught him to despise it. His stepfather, for example, could be very sarcastic about musical comedy, and, through both Enright and John Orgreave, George had further cultivated the habit of classical music, already acquired in boyhood at home in the Five Towns. In the previous year, despite the calls upon his time of study for examinations, George had attended the Covent Garden performances of the Wagnerian Ring, as he might have attended High Mass. 
He knew by name a considerable percentage of the hundred-odd themes in The Ring, and it was his boast that he could identify practically all the forty-seven themes in The Meistersingers. He raved about Tertina in Tristram. He had worshipped the Joachim Quartet. He was acquainted with all the popular symphonies of Beethoven, Schubert, Schumann, Mozart, Glazunov and Tchaikovsky. He even frequented the Philharmonic Concerts, which were then conducted by a composer of sentimental drawing-room ballads. And, though he would not class this conductor with Richter or Henry J. Wood, he yet believed that, somehow, by the magic of the sacred name of the Philharmonic Society, the balladmonger in the man expired in the act of raising the baton and was replaced by a serious and sensitive artist. He was accustomed to hear the same pieces of music again and again and again, and they were all, or nearly all, very fine, indisputably great. It never occurred to him that once they had been unfamiliar and had had to fight for the notice of persons who indulged in music exactly as he indulged in music. He had no traffic with the unfamiliar. Unfamiliar items on a programme displeased him. He had heard compositions by Richard Strauss, but he could make nothing of them, and his timid, untravelled taste feared to like them. Mr Enright himself was mainly inimical to Strauss, as to most of modern Germany, perhaps because of the new architecture in Berlin. George knew that there existed young English composers with such names as Cyril Scott, Balfour Gardner, Donald Tovey, for he had seen their names recently on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, but he had never gone to the extent of listening to their works. He was entirely sure that they could not hold a candle to Wagner, and his subconscious idea was that it was rather like their cheek to compose at all. He had not noticed that Hugo Wolf had just died, nor indeed had he noticed that Hugo Wolf had ever lived. Nevertheless, this lofty and exclusive adherent of the best music was not prejudiced in advance against the gay spark. He was anxious to enjoy it, and he expected to enjoy it. The gay spark had already an enormous prestige. It bore the agreeable, captivating label of Vienna, and immense sums were being made out of it in all the capitals of the world. George did not hope for immortal strains, but he anticipated a distinguished, lilting gaiety, and in the book a witty and cosmopolitan flavour that would lift the thing high above such English musical comedies as he had seen. It was impossible that a work of so universal and prodigious a vogue should not have unquestionable virtues. The sight of the red-nosed comedian rather shocked George, who had supposed that red-nosed comedians belonged to, to the past. However, the man was atoned for by three extremely beautiful and graceful young girls who followed him. Round about the small group was ranged a semicircle of handsome creatures in long skirts, behind whom was another semicircle of young men in white flannels. The scene was a street in Mandalay. The red-nosed comedian began by making a joke concerning his mother-in-law, and another concerning mendacious statements to his wife to explain his nocturnal absences from home, and another concerning his intoxicated condition. The three extremely beautiful and graceful young girls laughed deliriously at the red-nosed comedian. They replied in a similar vein. They clasped his neck and kissed him rapturously, and thereupon he sang a song of which the message was that all three extremely beautiful and graceful girls practised professionally the most ancient and stable of feminine vocations. The girls, by means of many refrains, confirmed this definition of their status in society. Then the four of them danced, and there was enthusiastic applause from every part of the house 
except the semicircle of European odalisques, lost for some explained reason in Mandalay. These ladies, the indubitable physical attractions of each of whom were known by the management to fill five or six stalls every night, took no pains whatever to hide that they were acutely bored by the whole proceedings. Self-sufficient in their beauty, deeply aware of the power of their beauty, they deigned to move a lackadaisical arm or leg at intervals in accordance with the respectful suggestions of the conductor. Soon afterwards, the gay spark herself appeared amid a hysteria of applause. She played the part of the wife of a military officer, and displayed therein a marvellous, a terrifying vitality of tongue, leg and arm. The young men in white flannels surrounded her, and she could flirt with all of them. She was on intimate terms with the red-nosed comedian, and also with the trio of delightful wantons, and her ideals in life seemed to be identical with theirs. When, through the arrival of certain dandies twirling canes, and the mysterious transformation of the Burmese street into a Parisian café, these ideals were on the point of realisation, there was a great burst of brass in the orchestra, succeeded by a violent chorus, some kicking, and a general wassail, and the curtain fell on the first act. It had to be raised four times before the gratefully appreciative clapping would cease. The auditorium shone with light. It grew murmurous with ecstatic approval. The virginal face of Lorenzin shot its rapture to Lucas as she turned to shake hands with George. Jolly well done, isn't it? said Lucas. Yes, said George. Lucas, too content to notice the perfunctoriness of George's affirmative, went on. When do you think that they are performing at this very night in St. Petersburg, Berlin, Paris, Brussels, and, I fancy, Rome? But I'm not sure. Marvellous, isn't it? It is, said George, ambiguously. Though continuing to like him, he now definitely despised Everard. The fellow had no artistic perceptions. He was a child. By some means he had got through his final and was soon to be a junior partner in Enright and Lucas. George, however, did not envy Everard the soft situation. He only pitied Enright and Lucas. Everard had often urged George to go to musical comedies more frequently, hinting that they were frightfully better than George could conceive. The gay spark gave Lucas away entirely. It gave away his method of existence. "'I don't believe you like it,' said Sharp Lorenzin. "'I adore it,' George protested. "'Don't you?' "'Oh, I do, of course,' said Lorenzin. "'I knew I should.' Lucas, instinctively on the defence, said, "'Second act's much better than the first. George's hopes, dashed but not broken, recovered somewhat. After all, there had been one or two gleams of real jokes, and a catchiness in certain airs, and the spark possessed a temperament in profusion. It was possible that the next act might be diverting. "'You do look tired,' said Lorenzin. "'Oh, no, darling,' Lois object. "'I think he looks splendid.' She was intensely happy at the theatre. The box was very well placed, since Irene had bought it, with a view equally good of the stage and of the semicircle of boxes. Lois's glance wandered blissfully round the boxes, all occupied by gay parties, and over the vivacious stalls. She gazed, and she enjoyed being gazed at. She bathed herself in the glitter and the gaudiness and the opulence and the humanity as in tonic fluid. She seemed to float sinuously and voluptuously immersed in it, as in tepid water lit with sunshine. "'Do you have a choc?' she invited eagerly. George took a chocolate. 
She took one. They all took one. They all had the unconscious pride of youth that does not know itself young. Each was different from the others. George showed the reserve of the artist, Lucas, the ease of the connoisseur of mundane spectacles, Lorenzin, the sturdy, Catholic, girlish innocence that nothing can corrupt. And the sovereign was Lois. She straightened her shoulders. She leaned languorously. She looked up, she looked down. She spoke softly and loudly. She laughed and smiled, and in every movement and in every gesture and tone she symbolised the ecstasy of life. She sought pleasure, and she had found it, and she had no afterthought. She was infectious. She was irresistible, and terrible too. For it was dismaying, at any rate to George, to dwell on the fierceness of her instinct, and on the fierceness of its satisfaction. To George her burning eyes were wistful, pathetic in their simplicity. He felt a sort of fearful pity for her. And he admired her. She was something definite. She was something magnificently outright. She did live. Also, he liked her. The implications in her glance appealed to him. The peculiar accents in which she referred to the enigma of Irene Wheeler were extraordinarily attractive to that part of his nature which was perverse and sophisticated. At least she is not a simpleton, he thought, and she doesn't pretend to be. Some day I shall talk to her. The orchestra resumed. The lights went out. Lois settled herself to fresh enchantment as the curtain rolled up to disclose the bright halls and staircases of a supper club. The second act was an amplification and inflammation of the themes of the first. As for the music, George listened in vain for an original tune, even for a tune of which he could not foretell the end from the beginning. The one or two engaging bits of melody which enlivened the first act were employed again in the second. The disdainful, lethargic chorus was the same. The same trio of delicious wantons fondled and kissed the same red-nosed comedian, who was still in the same state of inebriety, and the gay spark fitted roisteringly through the same evolutions in pursuit of the same simple ideals. The jocularity pivoted unendingly on the same twin centres of alcohol and concupiscence. Gradually, the latter grew to more and more importance, and the piece became a high and candid homage to the impulse by force of which alone one generation succeeds another. No beautiful and graceful young girl on the stage blenched before the salacious witticisms of the tireless comedian. On the contrary, he remained the darling of the stage. And as he was the darling of the stage, so was he the darling of the audience. And if no beautiful and graceful young girl blenched on the stage, neither did the beautiful and graceful young girls in the audience blench. You could see them sitting happily with their fathers and mothers and cousins and uncles and aunts, savouring the spectacle from dim stalls and boxes in the most perfect respectability. Lorenzin, leaning her elbows on the ledge of the box, watched with eager, parted lips, and never showed the slightest sign of uneasiness. George was uneasy. He was distressed. The extraordinary juxtaposition of respectability and a ribald sexual display startled but did not distress him. If the whole audience was ready to stand it, he certainly was. He had no desire to protect people from themselves, nor to blush on behalf of others, whoever they might be. Had anybody accused him of saintliness, he would have resented the charge quite justifiably, and if the wit of the gay spark had been witty, he would have enjoyed it without a qualm. What distressed him, what utterly desolated him, was the grossness, the poorness, the cheapness, the dullness, 
and the uninvented monotony of the interminable entertainment. He yawned. He could not help yawning. He yawned his soul away. Lois must have heard him yawning, but she did not move. He looked at her curiously, pitifully, speculating how much of her luxury was due to Irene Wheeler, and how little to Parisian of the Sunday Journal, for he had been inquiring about the fruits of journalism. The vision of his own office and of the perspective drawing rose seductively and irresistibly to his mind. He could not stay in the theatre. He felt that if he stayed, he would be in danger of dropping down dead, suffocated by tedium. And the drawing must be finished. It would not wait. It was the most urgent thing in the world. And not a syllable had any person in the box said to him about his great task. Lois's forearm, braceleted, lay on the front of the box. Unceremoniously, he took her hand. Bye-bye. You aren't going? The whisper was incredulous. Must. He gave her no chance to expostulate. With one movement he had seized his hat and coat and slid from the box, just as the finale of the act was imminent and the red-nosed comedian was measuring the gay spark for new lingerie with a jarred property cigar. He had not said good-bye to Lorenzin. He had not asked about their departure on the morrow. But he was free. In the foyer, a couple, a woman in a rose plush sooty de bal and a blade, were mysteriously talking. The blade looked at him, smiled, and left the lady. Hello, old fellow. It was Buckingham Smith who had been getting on in the world. They shook hands. You've left Chelsea, haven't you? Yes, said George. So have I. Don't see much of the old gang nowadays. Heard anything of old Princey lately? George replied that he had not. The colloquy was over in a moment. You must come and see my show next week, Buck Smith called out after the departing George. I will, cried George. He walked quickly up to Russell Square, impatient to steep himself anew in his work. All sense of fatigue had left him. Time seemed to be flying past him, and he rushing towards an unknown fate. On the previous day he had received an enheartening, challenging, sardonic letter from his stepfather, who referred to politics and envisaged a new epoch for the country. Edwin Clayhanger was a radical of a type found only in Midlands and the North. For many years, Clayhanger's party, to which he was passionately faithful, had had no war cry and no programme worthy of its traditions. The increasing success of the campaign against protection and certain signs that the introduction of Chinese labour into South Africa could be effectively resisted had excited the middle-aged provincial, now an alderman, and he had managed to communicate fire to George. But in George, though he sturdily shared his stepfather's views, the resulting righteous energy was diverted to architectural creation. End of part one, chapter nine, part one.